This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode 222. I got to hang out with Dr. Gabor Mate and dive into his new book, The Myth of Normal. It is such an incredible book. We had a rad discussion about how our coping mechanisms in childhood show up in parenthood. What makes this culture toxic? And what is trauma? Why is it widespread and yet so misunderstood? And what can we do to help support our tiny humans? I am so grateful to have been able to have this conversation with him. I've loved his work for so long. Y'all run, don't walk to go get The Myth of Normal. It's a New York Times bestseller and deservedly so. All right, folks, let's dive in. Hey there, I'm Alyssa Blass Campbell. I'm a mom with a master's degree in early childhood education and co-creator of the Collaborative Emotion Processing Method. I'm here to walk alongside you through the messy, vulnerable parts of being humans raising other humans with deep thoughts and actionable tips. Let's dive in together. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Voices of Your Village. Today, I get to hang out with renowned speaker and best-selling author, Dr. Gabor Mate. He is so brilliant, and I've been absolutely loving his latest book, a New York Times bestseller that I am sure you've been exposed to at this point, The Myth of Normal. Dr. Mate, I'm so excited to get to hang out with you today. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, and I hope you call me Gabor. Okay, great. <laughs> I can. Um, Gabor, I am curious what, when you were coming to this book, I mean, you've written so many incredible books. I love your work specifically around ADHD and, and think that it's really, really crucial. What was it that inspired the creation of this book? Well, this book took a long time to uh, generate itself and to gestate itself, um, about 10 or 11 years. Uh, my previous books had all tackled certain aspects, important aspects of um, the human experience, um, child development, um, childhood mental health challenges, if you can call it that, such as ADHD, addiction, and the mind-body unity in health and illness, uh, which is the subject of my book, When the Body Says No. But as a physician, and then also getting into the therapeutic world, uh, it's impossible to escape the knowledge that it's all connected, that these individual issues don't develop in a vacuum or of isolation, that really have, we have to look at the whole context in which people develop and in which they either do well, they thrive, or they suffer. And so many people are suffering these days. And so one has to look at the whole culture and the relationships between our personal interactions with others, 
and the cultural context in which that takes place and how all that affects our minds, our brains, our physiology, our health, our illness. So really, I was compelled to look at the large picture and to bring it all together. And hence was the genesis of the myth of normal. I I think it's so powerful. I think of it as like going upstream to look at the the source of a problem rather than staying downstream um, and pulling people out of the water. And it, it had me reflecting on my own life and my world. It's an early childhood educator and so many of the things that are day-to-day experiences that I navigate with kids as a teacher or as a mom, I have a toddler and things that, yeah, we just chalk up to like, this is normal. This is how it is uh, without taking that step back to say, is it, it is it? is it just standard because of our culture or is it normal? Uh, and I, I, your book really like challenged me to take that step back and really look at the whole picture. One thing that I'm curious about, I, I, I find myself then being like, okay, I want to, I don't want to repeat the challenges from my childhood. Right. And so there's kind of like this pendulum swing sometimes inside of me and I think that one of the challenges in parenting today, and maybe it's always been, and I'm just living it now, is this idea of perfection, of making sure that our kids don't experience anything hard and trying to to show up perfectly and what happens if we don't sort of thing. And I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Well, yes. Um, Here's the reality. Life is hard. The the Buddha said uh, 2,500 years ago that life is suffering. Not that it needs to be, but that it is, you know. And the fact is our children will get hurt. They'll have disappointments. Their friends won't want to play with them sometimes. Their grandmother may die. Uh, Their parents may fight. All kinds of things happen. So the real question is not how to safe, uh, safeguard our kids from difficult things happening, but how do we help them develop their resilience and the trust in themselves and the belief in the world and a capacity to ask for help so that they can negotiate and navigate these challenges? That has nothing to do with perfection. And that has nothing to do with trying to save them from the hardships of our own childhoods. And even the desire to be perfect and the desire to protect them comes from our own difficulties facing reality which does reflect our own childhoods so on the one hand we don't want to expose our children to unnecessary pain we don't want to hurt them with our own hurts we don't want to pass on to them our own traumas that we haven't dealt with i mean i did i passed my traumas on to my children i didn't know i had traumas to pass on when i passed them on I was just being who I thought I was being, that I was being someone who was still carrying their own trauma and unwittingly manifest them in my life and in a way that would affect my kids I had no idea about. So as much as possible, we want to work that stuff through. But on the other hand, to be over-anxious about having to be perfect and to protect our kids from all manners of difficulty and pain, that itself is going to make them anxious and they're going to um, absorb our own anxiety about life. So, how to say this in a nutshell? We have to protect them from unnecessary pain. At the same time, give them the resilience and the capacity and the trust and the strength to handle what pain does inevitably come along. Yeah, I think that that's so huge and so hard to keep front of mind is that like it is okay and they are going to experience hard things and you know one of the things you dive into in your work is how our coping mechanisms from childhood show up in parenthood and I I think personally, like building awareness of that is so key to being able to regulate it and go to those next steps. Just like you said, like you passed on that some trauma to your kids unknowingly. It wasn't like you were like, I'm going to pass this on. It it just happens when we have um, unresolved traumas. 
And so can you walk us through like how do our coping mechanisms in childhood show up in parenthood? What might that look like as an example? Well, so let's begin with what children's needs are. And uh, these are not uh, arbitrary. They're not invented. They are really what evolution has ingrained in us. Now, every creature has certain needs. You might say every creature has certain expectations. In fact, you might say even more deeply, every creature is an expectation. Mm. So a fish is an expectation for water and for a certain salinity in that water and certain nutrients. It's not that the little fish is hatched from the egg expecting that. It is very existence, expects all that. And what those expectations are, like our lungs don't expect oxygen, our lungs are an expectation for oxygen. If it wasn't for oxygen, our lungs wouldn't have developed. So when I talk about childhood's children's needs, I'm talking about what evolution has ingrained in us. So what are those needs? Unconditional, the accepting, safe, secure attachment relationship with nurturing adults. Not negotiable. Not negotiable in the sense that we can survive without it, but we can't thrive without it. Mm -hmm. That's the first one. The second one is really essential is that within that relationship, within an attachment relationship, the child should not have to work to make their relationship work. Mm. In other words, mm -hmm. other, the child should, and you know, and this is outlined in the myth of normal, so that the child should, ha should have rest in that relationship. There's nothing the child should be able to do to break their relationship with the parent, and there's nothing the child should have to do to rebuild it. That work is 100% on the parent. And on the parenting environment, I should say. I think uh, that's so important, that need that you just outlined. It's crucial. And denial of it leads to pathology. The, and, I'll, and I'll explain in a moment why. The third need that the child has is um, the freedom to experience all their emotions. Now, our brains are wired for certain emotions, which include joy and love and also fear and panic and grief and mm -hmm. anger. Not only our brains are wired for it, so are the brains of all mammals. This is pure evolution. And for us to be healthy, we have to be able to experience all those emotions and have those emotions be accepted and validated by the environment. So that's the third need. The fourth need, non-negotiable, for healthy child development is spontaneous free play out in nature not play on the internet not games not cell phone um games but free spontaneous creative play out in nature those are the four needs now if those needs are met we have healthy child development for most children in our society those needs are not met number one number two if those needs are not met, the child has to cope somehow. So, for example, the child does need to be able to experience their anger. There's nothing wrong with a two-year-old being angry. Sure. But if, the, but if the parents regard that based on the advice of any number of, and I say this advisedly, stupid parenting experts, that the child's anger should be punished and mm -hmm. discouraged the child will cope the child has a decision to make the child can say to themselves unconsciously i can belong to my parents and be accepted by them or i can experience my genuine emotions but it seems i can't have both because if i express my genuine emotions my parents give me a time out they banish me from their presence this is in what I call in one of the chapters, the conflict between attachment and authenticity. The need for the child to attach to the parent, which is non-negotiable, and the need for the child to be able to experience themselves as they truly are. Well, if the parents unwittingly give the message that you're not acceptable the way you truly are, the child will then cope by repressing their anger, by pushing on their anger, 
Now, what's another word for pushing down? Depression. That child will then be prone for depression later on. And because of the mind-body unity, which I can't even go into in this conversation, but I write about it in my book, When the Body Says No, and in this one, The Myth of Normal, when we suppress our healthy anger, we're also suppressing our immune system. Mm -hmm. So that coping mechanism that was essential for the child to maintain the attachment relationship. Therefore, it was the wisdom of the organism that the child should repress their anger, but the same coping mechanism, once ingrained, creates mental and physical health issues later on. You know, or if the parents are emotionally needy and, and, and upset and the relationship is not functioning, the child automatically takes on the work trying to make peace in the family by being good and being nice and being cooperative that's a coping mechanism that same coping mechanism will lead the child to ignore their own needs and to focus on the needs of others that is a cause of pathology later on so these early coping mechanisms when our essential needs are denied these early coping mechanisms they're not mistakes they're important for childhood survival but the same coping mechanisms become the sources of pathology and dysfunction and self-rejection later on. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for Mila Bean, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So, join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts, starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it. Yeah, and it's, it's so... Sorry, go ahead. No, I just hope that's clear enough. because it's, 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 Yeah. It's, mouthful but it's essential it is essential and i i was i was thinking about as i was reading the book like what does this look like for me as a parent and i i grew up in a large family i have four brothers and um it's a low-income household and my mom you know waitressed on weekends to make ends meet and all that and one of the things that i learned growing up was that having needs and expressing an, my own needs was not how I would receive or give love, right? Like, like that was not a basis for love. And that having low needs, like, was it that if I could just be the easiest, that that was lovable. And right. really looking at like, what did that look like down the road? When I experienced trauma as a teenager, I couldn't ask for help because that would be a burden to them. Yeah. Right. And then in parenthood, even now, like the idea of saying like, Hey, 
I have needs too. And I need to lean on other people in my village so that my needs can get met. There's a part of me that is constantly showing up and saying like, that's not, that's not how you receive love. That's not how you show love. You won't be lovable if you have those needs. Yes. So a couple of points here. First of all, no infant is born like that. I mean, have you, have you ever met a one day old infant that doesn't know how to ask for what they need? They're so good at asking for what they need. So something happens that disconnects us from ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so that by the time you become a teenager and say you're bullied, you don't ask for help. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, the bully knows that. That's why they bully you. The bully can pick up with 100% certainty. They have laser-like awareness of who is defenseless. And the kids who got bullied repeatedly are the kids who are cut off from asking for help. And I've talked to a lot of people over the years. Were you bullied? Were you ever abused? Yes. Who did you talk to? The answer is nobody. Mm -hmm. So that early message that you're not entitled to ask for your needs then creates all kinds of problems later on. Yeah. You know, and yet nobody's born like that. So it's a coping mechanism that helped you fit into your family of origin. You know, and by the way, two things I need to say. One is nobody's parents are, parents are being blamed here. Sure, 100%. I have fantastic parents. You know, they, they did yeah. their best, but they weren't present for you emotionally. Sure. You know, which is an essential need that you had. You know, yeah. so it's not a question of do we love our kids and do we do our best? The question is, what are our own limitations? And the other limitation, the big one, you talked about the village. Well, we're meant to parent in villages. We're mm -hmm. meant to parent as we evolved as human beings and as we lived until a blink of an eye ago, historically speaking. We lived in small band, hunter-gatherer groups where all the kids were parented by all the adults and they were with the parents the whole day. Mm -hmm. That's how we evolved. In today's culture, parents are so stressed, so isolated so um, belabored and so that when we see the preponderance of childhood mental health conditions ADHDs and so-called diagnoses like the non-existent oppositional defiant disorder which is total nonsense and and uh, the childhood the rising rate of childhood suicides mm -hmm. all the kids being medicated in North America which is unbelievable mm -hmm. what is that a sign of not lack of parents loving or trying to do their best, but parents being so stressed that kids' mental health is being affected by the conditions under which they grow up. And this is what we consider to be normal. Right. Yeah, that's the toxic culture part of it. That's the toxic culture, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and I feel it, you know, like even with the awareness of it, it's like, yeah, I, for me, that challenge can sometimes be the balance of meeting my needs and my child's needs. And how do, how do we do both? And, um, you know, for my parents, it wasn't that they didn't want to meet my needs. It was that they didn't have the bandwidth to meet my needs, that they were trying to meet needs for our survival that came first, right? And I I have so much compassion for that. You know, um in the world's richest country in history, the United States, which is where you live, um, the average family is within two paychecks of bankruptcy. Yeah. Now, that's an incredible stress on the parents. Yes. You know, and uh, that stress, I mean, know that children absorb their parents' stresses. So if you look at who gets diagnosed amongst kids, it's not surprising that it's kids of color and, and mm -hmm. minorities and, and poverty who get diagnosed more, more, more likely to get diagnosed and medicated for things like ADHD and other things. So rather than looking at the conditions that generate these problems, we keep trying to just deal with the manifestations and the symptoms. Yeah. And in fact, my profession, the medical profession, is basically trained to deal with symptoms rather than causes. So whether it comes to cancer or, or, or autoimmune disease or depression or anxiety or bipolar illness or psychosis, we're dealing with symptoms. Yeah. These diseases themselves are symptoms. The underlying causes being people's life experience, which as physicians, we're not trained to look at. Yeah, yeah, such a broken system. <laughs> such a broken system. And, and while we're looking at the United States here, 
it's so much of, you know, my work is with early childhood educators too. And like, talk about stress, like you and, and being below poverty wages. And when parents are stressed and we're working and we're then passing our children off to now this village that we pay for, we often pay more than our mortgage for, and we're passing them off to teachers who are stressed because they're receiving low poverty, below poverty wages often, and are working long days in really trying environments where they're not supported enough. And it just is the cycle that every adult that this child is interacting with so often is in a similar state of kind of like spinning on a hamster wheel. Well, as I, uh, in the book, The Myth of Normal, I quote my friend, the uh children's singer Rafi mm -hmm. and uh, with whose music my kids grew up and, and the generations of other kids and Rafi had this concept of what he calls a child honoring society what if we had a society that begins with the question what are the children's what are the needs of children how do we honor them well then we'll take different care of the food we give them the, the, the food that we manufacture the air that we breathe and so on um, and now, if you look at, you talked about teachers and childcare workers, these are amongst the lowest paid people in our society. Mm -hmm. They're doing the most important work because there's nothing more important. We could live without um, any number of corporate executives sure, or any number of um, historians of the Middle Ages. I'm not, I'm not putting down those professions. I'm just saying, you know, what's 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 the priority but how will we do without people that really know how to nurture and, and educate our kids but we don't value that at all yeah these are most, most underpaid professions and which means as a society we actually we actually don't think that kids are very important we pay yeah. lift service to it but look at the conditions in our schools and look at the education teachers get you know, which is um, all about conveying to kids facts and skills rather than how do people promote healthy child development? A hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is, while I have a master's in early ed and there was such a giant focus on, even, even when it looked at like social emotional development, classroom management was what yeah. it's called, right? Behavior yeah. management. And... I, so much of what I learned in social emotional learning was outside of my degree program, which is outrageous. Um, because yeah. what we're doing then is grooming teachers to have kids stand in a line. And I was just chatting with um, a, an administrator the other day about a preschool teacher who was having a really hard time getting her group of kids to, they were going to a, a physical education class, like a, a gym class, and they uh, needed to walk in the hallway and she wanted them to be quiet as they were walking. And this one kid didn't want to go. And then she's telling him he's not going to get access to the reward jar if he doesn't go. And like, it's all bribery and series of like punishment reward systems. It's all in the effort to just get him to walk in this line, to, to be um, not seen or heard or valued. There was no connection. There was, and without connection, we won't have that collaboration. But I think so often we don't slow down to just say like, what's this, what's really going on? Well, it's, it's all about behavior. And we don't realize that behavior is the Outward manifestation of internal and emotional dynamics. So there's this phrase acting out. Kids are acting out. Now, uh, Lisa, when I say a kid is acting out, don't give me your understanding of it because I'm sure you have a good understanding of it. What's the image that comes up in your mind? What does the average person think of when we talk about a kid acting out? Yeah, I'm seeing a kid like scream or push or hit or push boundaries, exactly. not do what they're supposed to. Good. Now let's speak English for a minute. In fact, I used to be an English teacher, you know, before I became a doctor. And um, acting out, it's a good phrase. We act something out when we don't have the words to say it in language. Mm. It's a game of charades where you're not allowed to speak. What do you have to do to convey the message? You have to act out. Or if I landed in a country 
where nobody spoke my language and I didn't speak theirs and I had to portray hunger, I'd have to make some gestures with my mouth and my hands to indicate hunger. Mm -hmm. I have to act it out. Kids are acting out. But what they're acting out are their un unmet emotional needs and their frustrations. Now, what if we teachers and parents were actually trained to understand the message and rather than respond to the behavior, we actually responded to the message. So maybe that child that doesn't want to walk in line lacks the connection with the teacher. So they don't trust or heed the teacher. And what if that teacher learned how to build a relationship? That child will want to then walk with that teacher. You know, what if the child has been pushed on too much by the adults and he's pushing back? And then we call that oppositional. Even this diagnosis, oppositional defined disorder, think about how stupid that is. It's really literally stupid. I keep using that word. Because here's the thing about oppositionality, like in the case of this kid. If I was talking to you right now, and if I had a cold or a flu, would I have less of a cold or a flu whether I was on a line with you or not? Would no. my cold? No. Right. Or, no. If my, or, or if my ankle was twisted, would it be any less twisted because you're talking to me? No. But could I, could I oppose you if I wasn't in interaction with you? I guess no. technically, yes, you could oppose, we could have opposing viewpoints, but you could. No, no, no. If I wasn't in a relationship with you, could I oppose uh -huh. you? No. Okay. In other words, oppositionality by definition implies a relationship. Why are we diagnosing the, the disorder in the child? Why don't we look at that child's relationship with the adult world? Yep. Well, and, because it's about power and control. Exactly. Rather than understanding the child's needs. So if we really wanted to help these children, some of them are oppositional, but it's not a disorder. It's their response to how they've been treated by the adult world. And if we want them to change, all we have to do is to change how we relate to them. And believe me, they'll change very quickly. But instead, we diagnose them with this so-called disorder. <laughs> it's, well, I won't, I don't need to characterize it. It's it, it it's it's misses the point entirely. It miss that's just it. Is that like uh, I think the word stupid comes up here because it's like it's just not effective either. If if what we really want is to connect with kids and collaborate, we have to bring awareness to our desire for power and control and realizing that when we say our goal is connection with kids. If that is the goal, then we have to slow down. <laughs> then we yeah. have to slow down and take a bigger look. You know, just this morning, my child was angry because he couldn't go into the basement at the moment yeah. that he wanted to go into the basement. And he's screaming and he threw his body on the ground. And yeah. in reality, he hadn't eaten breakfast yet and he was hungry and he receives yeah. that information at another point and he isn't throwing his body on the ground, right? So the, ex the external reaction was, I feel hungry and now this experience of not getting to go in the basement feels really, really big. And yeah. I, I think for us, it's the ability to slow down and say, yeah, I don't have to punish him or yell at him or teach him that he can't scream right now. I have to make sure that he has food earlier in the morning so that he can well, navigate the world. Well, there's more to it. Yes, that's all true. And there's more to it. We don't want to, we don't want power and control for its own sake, but we do have to, in a sense, dominate our kids. Sure. You know? I mean, like a two-year-old kid doesn't get to vote on whether to crawl out into the winter snow. Sure, sure. Or whether or not to be in a car seat. But it's 10 below. But, you know, so that it's yeah. a question of domination for the sake of keeping them safe and supporting their development. Right. You know, so we shouldn't be afraid of our power as parents. The question is, what is that power based on? The real power is not based on because we're bigger and stronger. It's based because they want to connect with us. Right. because they trust us you know and um it's an attachment relationship that gives us the power to parent right number one number two um 
there's nothing wrong with the kid being angry because even if they're not hungry, sure. you know, they want something. Now, children don't have the capacity to uh, distinguish their needs from their desires. Same, of, as, same as adults for a lot of us. I was, I was about to say that. <laughs> Nor do a lot of adults, which is, and by the way, this whole economy is based on confusing our needs with their wants. Yeah. They, they, they keep uh, they keep convincing us that we need something that we don't. They make us want it so bad that we confuse it with our needs. The whole consumer economy is based on that um, mm, misapprehension. But anyway, there's nothing. So the kid wants to go down to the basement, and and you say for good reasons, no, this is not the time to go down to the basement. Mm -hmm. get, they get angry. Now the question is, how do we respond? Time out. Or do we say, oh, you're really angry. You really want to go into the basement. And you really don't like that mommy doesn't let you. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Words, you validate the emotion without allowing the behavior. That's all the kid needs is yeah. to have their, their emotions understood. So it's not that they shouldn't be angry. They're going to be angry. How do we respond? What's the message that we give when they are? Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. Yeah, it's huge. And I think, but that's where I think people can can confuse the perfection part of like, this idea that they aren't supposed to be angry or they aren't supposed to throw their body on the ground and express it. It, it it's almost as if like, sure, you can be angry and here's exactly how you have to show up when you're angry. And it's this like regulated state that's unrealistic. Well, you know what? At, at one and a half, two year old is probably too young for even for you to tell them how they should show up. What they just need to experience is that you got their anger Right. And you're regulated. Right. You don't get you don't get dysregulated by their dysregulation. Now, as, uh, you may know the, the work of Dr. Dan Siegel. He wrote mm -hmm. a book called Developing Mind, and and Dan says in the Developing Mind that the child relies on the regulated circuitry of the adult brain to regulate the immature circuits of the child's brain. So the basic thing about regulation is not that we teach them ways to regulate themselves, but that we stay regulated ourselves. That'll allow for the healthy development of the child's self-regulation circuitry. So I don't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I necessarily agree that you have to tell a two-year-old how to show up. You Later on, and it is, you know, it's, once, once they're a little bit older and they can actually comprehend, you say, well, sure. next time you're angry, can you just tell mommy, mommy, I'm really angry with you, you know? But basically, what they really need from us is to stay regulated when they're not. A hundred percent. I meant it as like, that's a shortcoming. I think that that's something that we are expecting from any human that we're saying, like, when you are angry, when you are disappointed, you can only express it in these ways because of my comfort, because that yeah. makes me feel the most comfortable or it feels, it doesn't feel embarrassing for me in public if you express it like this. And it, I, I think so often we see this come up in parenthood where we're expecting kids to express their emotions in ways that make us feel comfortable. Well, first of all, 
to ask a subversive question, why would I be embarrassed because my two-year-old throws a tantrum in public? Oh, I think it happens all the time because it's it feels like uh, a reflection on us, like they're not supposed to throw a tantrum. Wait a minute now. That's only because I care about what other people think. A hundred percent. I'm asking you, why would I really be embarrassed? What, what's the big headline in New York Times? Two-year-old throws tantrum in, <laughs> sure. in, in supermarket. You know, oh my God, stop the presses, you know? Like part of it is our own need to fit in socially mm-hmm. and, to, and to look good to others. Then we use our kids to make sure that we don't look bad. Mm-hmm. Well, that's using our kids. Those kids shouldn't be used. It's not the child's job to make me look good in front of others, you know? And if I have a big need to look good in front of others, I need to examine, well, what is it in me that doesn't accept me enough that I need to rely on the acceptance of others, you know? So um, our kids have a way of confronting us with their own challenges, don't they? Yeah, I mean, put it on a billboard. Yeah. Put it on a billboard. It's so real that like that trigger... Yeah. Oh, it's, it's so much of it's about us. <laughs> so much of it's about us. The set method that I co-created with a colleague, we, it's five components. One is adult child interactions. The other four are about us. Like it, mm. if we're not taking a look at ourselves, what are we doing? Um, yeah. Well. So, so my parents asked me actually, how to avoid passing on their stuff to the kids. And my first advice is work on yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, deal with yourself. Don't worry, don't put it about, don't make it about the child, make it about yourself. And Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Buddhist teacher, he said that the biggest gift that a parent can give to their child is their own happiness. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. It, it lets them know that their happiness is valued. That they get to value their own happiness. That's right. Yeah, it's huge. And, I, so they, and so they don't have to work to make you happy. Correct. Yeah, they're not responsible for my happiness. Someone asked me the other day about, I was, I was speaking at an event in the evening and missing bedtime. And it was another mom that had asked, like she was also in attendance and was missing bedtime. And she was like, how do you navigate that feeling, the like guilt of not being there for bedtime? And uh, the truth is that I want my child to see that I have joy and things that bring me joy outside of him. Because if it's only him, then he's responsible for my happiness. If he's the only thing that brings me joy, that's a lot, that's a big weight to carry. And I want him to see me live my life and experience it fully because I want that for him too. Like I want, I don't want him to look to somebody else for his happiness either. I want him to be able to experience things that bring him joy. And I think it's okay for him to experience the disappointment of me not being there for bedtime. Yeah, as long as you repair that. Sure. You know, um, because, and here's the problem for a lot of parents in our society. In the United States, 25% of women have to return to work within two weeks of giving birth. It's outrageous. Which is amounts to a massive abandonment of infants because there's no way other than as abandonment that the child can experience that. And the message they get is that they're not worthy. And or, or that their secure, secure attachment caregiver isn't there, that they're not safe. Yeah, yeah. And so it's not just a matter of, like for a certain class of parents, it's a matter of choice, you know, do I honor my own joy and my, you know, and mm-hmm. for a lot of parents in this society, there's not a whole lot of choice involved. Sure. They have to leave their kids in the hands of strangers very early on just to bring bread to the table. Correct. You know? And and really what it amounts to is that, and furthermore, even in good daycares, very few daycare workers are trained in attachment, understanding the needs for the child to attach. So they're caregivers, but they're not emotional nurturers. And so if, if it so happens that the way we live today, we can't go back to hunter-gatherer days, we can't recreate with the best of goodwill that uh, attachment village that used to exist, but we can understand what we've lost 
And if we need to spend so much time away from our kids, we need to make sure that the environment in which they go, the adults there are connected with us and with the child so that the child's, so that, what can I say, that attachment baton that is passed on from one adult to another. Mm -hmm. We make that, that, so that the child is always in a context of supporting, nurturing relationships. And that should happen all the way through schooling because the child's brain develops from before birth until adulthood, which means that every environment the child goes into, whether it's preschool, daycare, kindergarten, school, needs to be emotionally informed to promote healthy child brain development, which depends on nurturing emotional relationships. Yeah. And, and, and this is pure brain science. It's not even controversial. An average physician, teacher, daycare worker, policymaker never even hears about it. Yeah, it's it's that shift to classroom management and behavior management, right? That like when that's what we're focused on, we're not focused on the relationship. We're not focused on attachment and connection. We're yeah. focused on power over. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely. Oh, I am so grateful for your work and for your brilliant brain and for you sharing it with us today. Can you share um, the full title of your book and let people know where they can connect with you, find you, follow you, learn more about your work? Sure. Well, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> the book is entitled The Myth of Normal Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture. Um, this is the fifth of my books. It's currently still on the New York Times bestsellers list and it's being published in 30 languages um, internationally. Um, my other books, Scattered Minds, is on ADHD, which is not an inherited disease. It's a response to the environment, as I put it. When the body says no on the mind-body connection in illness and health, um, hold on to your kids. Why parents need to matter more than peers. Do you know that book? Yeah. Okay. You might really want to have the main author of that book, Gordon Newfeld, on sometime. He's he's the most adept, deepest developmental psychologist in the universe. I wrote the book with him, but it's really that book is really his. Hold on. To yeah, you. I would love to have him on. Well, send me an email, and I'm happy to put you in touch with him. Thank okay. you. Yeah. Um, and then um, my book on addiction is called "In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts: Close Encounters with Addiction." <clears throat> there's a million of my talks on YouTube. I have to. There's no nothing to sign up for. You just put my name into YouTube and you're going to find any number of talks on child development, addiction, health, mind, body, unity, the myths are normal. But there's also my website, drgabormate.com, where you can sign up if you want to be on my mailing list, um, where um, all the resources, all my books and so on, events are listed. So there's also a film you can find online called The Wisdom of Trauma which um, was published a year and a half ago, and it's been seen by about 10 million people internationally. Um, you can make a donation to the filmmakers if you want to fund their next project, but you don't need to. You can put in zero, zero dollars. You still get to watch the film. It's called The Wisdom of Trauma. You can find it online. And finally, there's an organization called wholehearted.org that has some of my... Um, programs for um, fairly inexpensive purchase on trauma and an addiction. They're really good programs. It's hard to avoid me is what I'm saying. I have to <laughs> Google my name and find it. That's awesome. Thank you so much for all of your work. And I hope folks wheels are turning, whether they're thinking about what this looks like in the classroom and some of the um, practices that we have in the environment that they're in and what it creates and also for our parents that are tuning in really looking at what this means for us and, and go out get that book snag the myth of normal and I'm excited to hear how it shifts their perspective I also have an Instagram account um, at this point we have about 1.2 million followers and I do Instagram live stuff no no, no cost to anybody uh, with my daughter who's studying psychology in New York. And the next one we're going to do will be on the um, on Sunday, which is I think the 26th of this month. 
and um and um you know you can people send in questions and we just answer them so it's always a lot of fun so and anyway listen thank you so much for giving me this platform for your interest in my work and and for the work that you do as well it's not enough people are doing that kind of work thank but, you but i think it's i think there's a tide that's rising i really do i think so too i mean there is investment in it and hopefully we can see some shifts yes thank you Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the transcript at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community over on Instagram hanging out every day with more free content? Come join us at seed.and.so, S-E-W. Take a screenshot of you tuning in, share it on the gram, and tag seed.and.so to let me know your key takeaway. If you're digging this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We love collaborating with you to raise emotionally intelligent humans. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.